And now, coming to you live from the Gorshin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with special guest Anne Leckie on the Coot Street Podcast! And, and, welcome. That is that is Jonathan's impression of some, of, of Kermit, I think. Um, it, it always makes me want to sing the Muppet theme song, actually. Always do that! Uh, <laughs> it would be a horrible copyright violation, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it would be very appropriate. Well, actually, for a long time, I've had a friend tried to help us come up with a theme song for the show, and maybe we should just write new lyrics for the, the Muppet Show theme and see how it goes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, anyway, congratulations, Anne. The Nebula Award, the BSFA, the Clark Award, the Hugo nomination. What else have I left out? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the Kitschies Golden Tentacle Award. Congratulations. It actually has money attached to it. It actually right? has money attached to it. It does. And a bottle of rum. Oh, okay. That's now, now you've got me interested. Yeah, a bottle of Creek and Rum because I think they sponsor the award, and uh, it took a while. Uh, the Creek and the the company that produces Creek and Rum. Fantastic. Yeah, I always wondered if they got involved in the field. Uh, but I have a bottle. I'm looking at the bottle of Creek and Rum right now, and I always wonder if they got involved in the field because of China Miebel's novel, or if that <laughs> if there's a connection there somewhere. Because this award appeared like suddenly out of nowhere about the same time that his novel, Kraken, uh, appeared. That's It would be worth looking into when Crick and Rum started being sold. I've always, uh, I mean, they have one of the coolest labels, right, on the shelf. They do. It's really cool. <laughs> At any rate, to get back to our original congratulations, uh, for a, not only is this an astonishing string of, 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 of nominations and awards, but it's it's for a first novel, uh, which I I guess the it doesn't very often happen that this uh, uh, sort of accolade um, set of accolades gets uh, addressed to a first novel. The most famous case, obviously, is Neuromancer from thirty years ago now, which um, is it is quite a novel, yeah. And it's quite a novel. Nobody quite knew who Bill Gibson was, except a few people who had read some short stories. Uh, paperback original, uh, and it just changed everything. Uh, so you're in very rarefied company with that. <laughs> I, I'm I'm still in shock. <laughs> well, I guess we should ask. I mean, where where did the idea for the, for ancillary justice come from? How long have you been, you know, working your way up to this sort of heady reception for the book? Um, actually, uh, the idea is really old. It's not, it's not one of those things where I can point to a thing and say, oh, that, and then I put that together and that inspired me, but it was a matter of, um, you know, I always imagine everybody does this, but maybe everybody doesn't do it when you're bored or you're waiting for something and you just start putting things together and making little stories and assembling that into something logical. And over time it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, most of the stuff that ended up, <clears throat> excuse me, in Ancillary Justice just kind of grew out of that process, which took a very long time and did not begin as a deliberate attempt to mm -hmm. to build a, wor a world to write stories in. So wasn't oh, no, it you, Sorry, Gary. Uh, were you working on this when you were, uh, you were at Clarion West, right? Uh, I was at Clarion West, with, yeah, in 2005. Were these ideas already in mind when you were writing stories for the um, Clarion experience? Oh yeah! By the time I started, by the time I applied to Clarion, I had, it had already occurred to me that maybe I should try and like make things consistent and use it as a as a, actually try and write some stories out of it. Uh, most of my short fiction set in that universe did not do well. Uh, oh. 
but uh, but yeah, by the time I was at Clarion West, I was already trying to, I had already written two novels in that universe, which only a few people have ever seen and may never be seen by <laughs> anyone else. Um, and I already knew that, I, I already had the beginnings of the story for Ancillary Justice, but I was afraid to start writing it um, because I didn't think I could do it because I knew that it wanted to be in first person and I didn't think I could handle that POV character. So it was a very long time before I felt like I could say to myself, okay, I can try this. It's a complicated character to write because you're writing in two different time frames and the character sometimes has difficulty perceiving the behavior of people around her. Uh, and speaking of her, this is, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, every review, and I'm sure you know more of them than I do, every review of this book, it's the only novel of any sort in the last several years where every review talks about pronouns. <laughs> I, I think that's true. I don't think I've run across one that doesn't talk about the pronouns. <laughs> so the pronoun, so, so that's an interesting decision that has to go back to the beginning uh, of this whole process, or does it? It pretty much does. Um, rather naively, when I started putting the universe together, I said, wouldn't it be cool to have a society that really genuinely didn't care about gender? Um ah. Wouldn't that be neat? Now, that's really naive. Now, looking back on that, I'm like, yeah, there are some problems with starting from that assumption. And, and there might be other ways to go after doing something interesting with gender. Uh, but that was where I started from. And uh -huh. when I wrote the first two novels that are in the drawer, uh, I, of course, I used regular pronouns for everybody and assigned genders to everybody. But I was really unsatisfied because, I mean, it didn't give the effect of a society that didn't care about gender at all, uh, right. even when I tried to make things very equal. And so for a long time, I thought about how to handle that. Uh, and ultimately, I decided to go with she, uh, partly because of, of course, uh, Le Guin notoriously made the other decision. Well, there are more than two decisions, obviously, to make. Yeah. She mm -hmm. decided to use the masculine pronoun uh, for Left Hand of Darkness, and then rather famously uh, expressed some dissatisfaction with having chosen that. Um, and so in the end, I decided to go with she, even though it didn't really give a gender neutral impression, but I kind of liked the way it undercut the usual default. And so I ended up going with that. But it took me a long time to decide that that was what I was going to do. And I even wrote a short story using he for everybody and was really unhappy with that. And you never tried using these artificial pronouns like uh, Greg Egan wrote a novel in which she used V or Ver, I think. And from, as I recall, Marge Percy in Woman at, the, Woman, at, Woman at the End of Time used Purr or something like that. None of which ever seems yeah. to work when people do that. Um, I, I thought briefly about using them, and I decided in the end that uh, it would be an even bigger bar to readers than using she for everybody. Uh, thinking back, I, almo I almost kind of wish that I had decided to use like Spivak pronouns or something. Uh, but at the same time, there are lots of things that I really like about having used she. But I kind of wish that more people would use some of those pronouns so that they would get more familiar and they would because the big bar to using them right now is that people aren't familiar with them. Uh, and so they make reading difficult. But I think it would be really interesting if some of them would come into more wide use. I think that would be kind of cool. But it's I mean, that's a that's a big bar to leap over. It's It's hard to to get something like that to be more commonly used. I guess what I'm have curious you, have you had any readers, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Yeah, 
I was, I was going to say, uh, have you had any readers, probably not, uh, not veteran science fiction readers, but possibly new readers saying, how come all the characters are women? Um, there's been a few, uh, there've been one or two folks who I've seen conversations say things like, oh, I thought all the characters were women. And then I realized that they weren't, uh, and, but I don't think I've seen it as a complaint necessarily, which I think is good. Actually, I was kind Mm -hmm. of expecting some folks to complain about that, uh, you know, at least one or two, because you know, there's always one or two, uh, but, uh, but, and so I've seen some folks who have read it all the way through and really not quite gotten what was going on and just figured they were reading a book with lots of women in it, which is fine by me, you know. Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, one of the things that comes across in the novel, uh, apart from um, from Brecht's sometimes inability to figure out gender assignments or in, in, in cultures that have gender assignments, is the assumption, I guess, I guess the lesson, I should say, the pronouns are inevitably political, no matter what you do with them. Um, and you do have a gender-free society. You do have the the ratch. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, actually, what? most of what you said broke up, so I can't. So I I didn't get most of your question there or your I, statement. I was gonna, the point to say that uh, the the point I was starting to make was that one of the things I took away from the novel is the notion that that pronouns are um, are political inevitably. Uh, and the ratch is that how I'm supposed to pronounce that? I, I right. usually say Raj, but yeah. Raj, whatever. Um, they are a gender-neutral society. They're a society that recognizes no gender. And if anybody believes that's a utopian state, well, they're not a very nice society, are they? No, they're not. They're not at all. Yeah. That's I had. A, I've seen a couple of reviewers express some disappointment with that, and I can't really blame them. <laughs> Um, because, you know, you would kind of hope that a, a truly gender neutral society wouldn't be this horrible, <laughs> yeah, uh, colonialist, uh, well, of course, I mean, it, it, I guess whether they're a hor- horrible society or not sort of depends on where you're standing, doesn't it? Because from certain places in there, it's actually probably not a bad place to be, but, you know, God help you if you're in their way, right? Indeed. Well, I was going to say, totalitarian societies historically are probably more gender neutral than most societies for that matter, where they describe their subjects or their victims or their uh, colonial uh, populations as units or objects or um, slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was the, the Raj universe, when you conceived it, always going to be, I guess, a laboratory for discuss- discussing and investigating issues of gender that were on your mind at the time? Not not particularly. To be honest, it was a universe where I was going to shove in every cool and shiny thing that I could think of <laughs> and mm-hmm. and then take the toys out of the box and then see what games I could play with the toys that were in there. And so I didn't start out saying I really want to interrogate gender. To, to some extent, deciding that gender was going to be an issue in uh, what language I chose in writing actually made me more interested in gender issues than I was even at the start. And so uh, just going through that was a really educational kind of a process. I, w- I ended up more interested in the question than I began. Okay. I, I guess one yeah. thing, sorry, we're we going to say something no, here. Right. I was going to say, um, what made you decide to write science fiction and to write this kind of story as science fiction? Where, where do you, where's your background in science fiction and what do you think it lets you do that you can't do otherwise? Well, I've 
pretty much been reading science fiction since I could read uh, that I remember. Um, so, so I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, and it's, it's sort of, I guess, a natural habitat for me. Um, this kind of science fiction, to me, the, the first author that I recognized was like somebody who actually wrote a book and this person wrote more books and I could find by that person instead of just being random things I was taking off the library shelves, um, was Andre Norton. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I have, I still have a couple of shelves worth of Andre Norton paperbacks and that's after culling it down from a couple of moves. Uh, I read way more Andre Norton than was, could possibly have been good for me. Um, <laughs> and, and so that kind of adventure space opera-y kind of, uh, science fiction was really one of my favorites from a very young age. Uh, and, uh, and I went from there to say CJ Cherry, that sort of thing. Um, Jack Vance, God, I love Jack Vance. Oh. Uh, so, uh, so that sort of, really colorful, really adventure really uh, more interested in anthropology and linguistics and history than necessarily in physics, say, uh, was it was really uh, my favorite. Although, I'm, I mean, you know, when you're a kid who likes to read, you pull everything off the library shelf you can find. So I read all kinds of things, but that was really my favorite. And so that was yeah. when I sat down to, yeah, when I sat down to write, I said, what's, what's the book I wish that I would find on the shelves? And so I just put everything in it that, you know, I had always loved. I think that's one of the reasons the book is becoming so popular. And I think it's one of the reasons that people, uh, some people I've talked to are relieved to see it on the Hugo ballot because uh, there, there are moments that recapture that sense of why did I start reading science fiction in the first place? And I'm guessing that with Andre Norton, you were reading her science fiction novels or Starman Sun kind of novels more than the, um, which world and fantasy things am i right oh i was reading all of them every single oh, one of them anything okay. i could find yeah yeah you <laughs> bet also, but i love the oh, the zero stone oh that stuff's fabulous yeah okay um i'm glad people are still reading her i guess she's still in print isn't she yeah yeah okay for cool. now i think yeah and i think every now and again things still come out via, via the um the the, you know, the trust or whatever it is, the yeah. literary estate. Um, uh, does science fiction, do you feel it lets you do things that you couldn't otherwise do? What, what do you think makes science fiction still useful? Or is it just the, the almost like the default thing that you came to because you'd read so much of it as a child? Well, to some extent, I, I think it was the default thing that I came to. But I also think that, um, you know, science fiction does let you take things that are familiar from ordinary life and put them in a different context or or twist them around and look at them from a different angle that it would be really really difficult to do if you were writing completely realistic fiction there are things uh things you can do with uh what makes a human being a human being you can do a question like that in realistic fiction but it's the tools are so much uh handier in science fiction to do things like that so that's i think that's one of the things i really like about it do you think one that, of the, sorry, sorry, Gary, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, I was going to say in the list of writers that you had mentioned earlier, uh, you didn't list Le Guin, but you mentioned the left hand of darkness. Of course, one of the things um, that very much describes what you just said about what you can do in science fiction was 
uh, and you must have heard, you must have seen this in reviews or somewhere, although I haven't, that, that, okay, if you're writing a novel about a winter journey across an icy planet with somebody whose gender signals you can't figure out, that begins to sound a lot like Le Guin in its surface manifestation. Yes. Well, the funny thing was, I had not, when I started writing the novel, I had not uh -huh. read Left Hand of Darkness. Really? Really. Um, and so uh, as I, I was researching, like, uh, all those different South Pole journeys and stuff uh, for some background information and uh, realized when I was looking for books that really I probably ought to read Left Hand of Darkness, uh, not just for the, the sort of winter setting, but also just on you know, on general principles. And I read it and I was like, oh, yeah, I should have read this a long time ago. <laughs> oh, that's a, there's a difference. I wasn't trying to suggest that uh, that there was a direct influence. What I call resonance with other books um, comes up again and again. We've had, I had a conversation once with Scott Westerfeld about his Ugly series, which is about a society in which everybody gets made beautiful at the age of 18. And there were a couple of Twilight Zone episodes like that, sort of. Mm -hmm. There was an L novel and he, he had never he'd never seen these twilight zone episodes he was glad to find out about them and i had to explain to him no i wasn't saying you were ripping them <laughs> off saying, oh yeah there's, there's yeah yeah and that's one of those it's it's really interesting isn't it um i've started really noticing uh the ways that those resonances happen in those books and the way in in any book and the way that if you don't have that cultural background uh those resonances aren't there. It's like you can't hear them and it makes the book seem really flat. I find that really interesting the way that different experiences. Um, but obviously the Le Guin is very much in, in the air, uh, mm -hmm. in the same way that those Twilight Zone episodes are so famous. I have seen those episodes, but, uh, I think they're mm -hmm. so famous that they're almost kind of there, even if you haven't read them or read them, seen them, read I them. I, I think there are writers that, uh, you mentioned Jack Vance, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I will tell you, Jack, okay, I, have, I had a Jack Vance moment in Ancillary Justice, um, and it's still one of my favorite images in the whole thing, and that's the glass bridges. Oh, yeah. Oh, they are so cool, and it's the kind of thing that, that Jack Vance used to do in uh, his, uh, you know, um, well, in, in all of his series, but I'm specifically thinking of the Dying Earth series, where there would just be this absolutely marvelous visual invention and you could have you could have gotten that part of the plot done with any number of less spectacular inventions. But there's this deep history. There's this enormous mystery that goes back to some unknown civilization uh, that just implies a whole set of other novels, a whole set of things. And Vance did that over and over and over again, it seems to me. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, and his visuals are so gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do a boring visual if he could do a fantastic, you know... Absolutely. How important do you think it is to provide, I guess, that kind of a thing in a book, particularly in a science fiction book, you know, to, to, to provide some kind of eye kick, some kind of thing that really makes you go, wow? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of book you're writing. I mean, there are so many different kinds of science fiction. Um, certainly, I feel like for an adventure space opera sort of thing, it's really important. For me, as a reader, that's it's, that's one of the things I really, really enjoy and would feel the lack of. Um, but if I were writing, you know, a more sort of stayed near future kind of thing, or, you know, there are all kinds of, of different ways to approach it. But in, in this particular mode, yeah, to me as a reader, it'd be really important. Well, I guess it's also such a, a, a integral part of something like space opera. You know, and mm -hmm. I am interested that 
of all of the kinds of science fiction you could have written that you chose space opera. I mean, because it is, if you like, on, on some level, the, the, the real core, most common old type of science fiction there is, and one that constantly needs some kind of reinvention to remain fresh. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, was there a desire to get into space, as it were? With oh, story? yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I was interested um, that... Sorry, yeah? No, I, no go ahead. I was going to say, I was also interested that, you, that you earlier you name-checked name C.J. Cherry, because it really does strike me as picking up a lot of the same kind of concerns in a way. I mean, she's got a much darker... Uh, mindset and, uh, when she gets into the whole sort of union alliance universe but there is that st- same focus on politics on sociology on economics on making a world be robust and thick and uh, believable and i could see that mm-hmm. could be important in doing this yeah actually there are a couple of deliberate hat tips to cj cherry in in the course of the book mm-hmm. actually She's been, yeah, her, her work has been a huge influence on me. Um, it would not surprise me if, if uh, heavy-duty Cherry fans didn't immediately see that, you know, for instance, there's a real strong flavor of the Foreigner books in these. Sure. Let me ask you as well. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I was, re- I was asked a question yesterday, and I didn't feel that I was the best person to answer it, but I might pass it on to you in a sense. How difficult do you think it is to be a woman writing that kind of science fiction today? And do you think it's true that fewer women seem to be either encouraged or motivated to write this kind of science fiction? Hmm. That's, um, on the one hand, I mean, obviously I'm not having a terribly difficult time. (laughs) Um, so, uh, so there's that, uh, on the other hand, I mean, I can look around me and see the way that different people's fiction is received. Um, I find it kind of interesting that space opera and this kind of science fiction, as you say, is is sometimes described as being something that guys do, uh, except that my experience growing up was that this kind of science fiction was the sort of thing that I found women writing uh, and that is not infrequently called, uh, you know, well, it might as well just be fantasy. It's not real science fiction. Um, and so I, I, I find that sort of double, because I find both comments together uh, fairly frequently, and I find it kind of interesting, that sort of paradox going on there. Um, I do think that uh, that some women writers are have a harder time finding the time and the space uh, sort of psychologically and physically to do the writing and also find a harder time submitting uh, and tend to be more easily discouraged when they're rejected repeatedly. Uh, It's my experience for a while. I read, uh, well, I read slush for Podcastle, which Mm -hmm. is the fantasy podcast. And I also, I run my own tiny little web zine, Giganotosaurus. Although I've handed over the editing of that to someone else because I am too busy for it right now. But one of the things I noticed in Slush, in both of those, is that the, the things that are, it's obvious somebody just sort of barfed it out and decided it was brilliant and sent it are almost always by people with masculine names. Um, And that's, so that when, for instance, when people talk about slush piles being 70-30 uh, male-female, uh, most of the preponderance of submissions from women are 
much more carefully formatted, much more carefully written, even if they're not particularly marvelous. Uh, there's a higher percentage of subs from guys that are just not that great. I mean, not even proofread. Now, I don't think this is because I don't think this is because women are just better writers. It can't be. That would be ridiculous. Um, I think that women are socialized to be a lot more careful about even walking out of the house without making sure they look okay. Uh, and I think men are socialized to be much more confident and uh, and sort of uh, risk-taking. And so I think what happens is uh, women are much more careful. Uh, and on top of it, uh, between taking care of kids and doing all the things that you end up having to do, they have less free time, uh, you're going to get a lower percentage of submissions from women. And so I think ultimately down the line, that's a problem. Uh, I would hate to think that there are brilliant writers who are not submitting because they don't think they're very good or who they know they can go over and do fanfic, which is all fanfic is awesome. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I can I, Fanfic is also predominantly women. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that that's a place where there's very little risk and your friends will give you kudos uh, and you can develop your writing skills and everything. Uh, so I think there's there's some of that social and psychological things maybe filtering some women out of writing. Uh, and I think the narrative about this kind of science fiction being uh, mostly by or for guys doesn't help when I don't think it's actually true that this kind of science fiction is mostly by or for guys, if that makes sense. It, it absolutely no, does. I, think, I mean, I've got to say my own reading experience is not exactly the same as yours, but certainly when I think back, I was always encountering women who were writing what I would have thought of, thought of as to, to be simplistic about it, as core science fiction, and yet the modern narrative always seems you know the current narrative seems to be that you know that wasn't the case that uh, it's always been very difficult and I understand that it's actually been unfriendly for women to submit I think because you know if you don't see lots of women physically on tables of contents on bookshelves then you begin to think well maybe you know this just isn't something for you or you're not as welcome. But it doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be a true reflection of a lot of the history of the genre. I mean, obviously, I mean, you were talking about reading Norton, reading Cherry, reading... I mean, I, I read a lot of Marion Zimmer Bradley when I was growing up, and she wrote some stuff in this sort of space, some elsewhere. Um, probably a lot fewer... I was going to say there's a lot fewer women writers I can think of who wrote uh, Robert L. Forward or Hal Clement-type hard SF. But the truth of it is that's always been a very small percentage of the field anyway. Exactly. So I don't know if that's one of those casual distortions that come out where you're not looking at the real statistics that says, well, there's 10,000 books by men that aren't real hard SF and there's 50 that are. And so if you only get 500 books by women, you're not going to get a heck of a lot of books that are really hard SF. Mm -hmm. well, I think, I think you're right. Well, when you're talking about submissions uh, to short fiction and that sort of thing, um, and, and, and we're all getting into territory where we can oversimplify the way men and women behave. Sure. But when you yes. end up with a, when you end up with a nebula slate, which is all women, which um, and which is a, um, it's been what somebody pointed out, it's been 20 years since there was an all male slate of of nebula winners. It makes you wonder. It makes me wonder. And both of you have done editing in a way that I haven't. If the reason women's submissions may be more thought out is uh, well, and kind of what you were saying. If people have friends around, they have people they show their fiction to, and maybe women. Take that seriously. If somebody says this isn't really ready to go now, they won't send it out until it's ready to go. So it may be in better shape by the time it, it gets out. It's possible that some younger male writers 
a couple of whom I could actually name, will only take their friend's advice so far, at which they point, at which point they say basically, I think it's good, I'm sending it out, I don't care what you say. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to be honest, sometimes you need to do that. That's the thing I think all of us need to learn when to do that as writers. Um, so I, I don't want to say that that's a bad impulse, but I think you're probably right. Yeah. Does that mean that women write better short fiction than men do these days? Or just that the <laughs> short fiction or the, you know, the, the second part of that question, that, that women's the short fiction that gets into the slush piles by women tends to be more prepped, as you said, Anne. it's like. You know, you don't want to send this out, and you're not going to send this out dressed like that, are you? Um, which is, exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the second. It's not because I am convinced. I mean, I have no hard data for this, but I'm convinced that if you took all the writers in the world uh, and lined them up according to their ability, you would find that there would be a 50-50 split between, you know, there would be just as many great or horrible men writers as great or horrible women writers. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, there's no reason that it wouldn't be any other, it would be any different. Um, I really do think that uh, the split that I've seen in slush piles, it has to do with, as you say, you know, you're not going out dressed like that young woman, you know, <laughs> brush your hair first, you know, that those shoes aren't stylish, put on a little makeup, you know. Do you think that the current, interest in and discussion about inclusiveness in science fiction has impacted on the reception of ancillary justice? Very probably. Uh, certainly in, I've seen it suggested, uh, for instance, that uh, ancillary justice has no really redeeming value besides its political statement. Um, I'm often baffled as to what the political statement is, is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and that it's because of the drive towards inclusivity that uh, it's being praised the way that it is. Well, you know, some people don't like it, and that's fine, and I don't have a problem with it. Uh, but certainly I've seen that end of the conversation. I'm also quite sure that some of the interest in the the gender stuff in the pronouns is partly because, to some extent, this conversation has already been happening. Uh, it may well be that if it had come out a few years ago, parts of the conversation wouldn't have happened, and maybe it wouldn't have struck some of the, the readers the way that it has, because some of the groundwork hadn't already been laid. Uh, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, I, I couldn't really say, but that would be my impression, that it, it has come out at a fortunate time, Yeah, I would suspect. I think your use of pronouns, though, goes beyond, it goes beyond gender in a lot of ways toward, uh, toward the general, I don't know if cluelessness is the right word, but the general difficulty that Breck has in recognizing other cultures. I'm thinking of a scene, oh, it seems to me it's in the second half of the novel somewhere, Breck is in a city and is just confused by this, storm of sensations. There are people of all different colors and of different shapes and sizes wearing different kinds of clothes and different kinds of hairstyles. And, and she has to try, try to figure out not just what gender these people are, but all the issues of, of gender and race and style and genetic modifications, everything just strikes her as being utterly confusing. And that strikes me as an interesting way of portraying an integrated society which is integrated in far more ways than simple gender. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Yeah. And that's a scene uh that's a scene where in fact she's back in the rotch and her confusion is is not confusion yes. as such but the habit of being other places where where all of those cues would be really conflicting and and 
she would have trouble coming through them. Yeah. yeah. Which brings us to the other question, uh, which is, I think, one that gets some discussion. And that's point of view. Um, writing a character, uh, this is going to be an odd comparison, but it's something that crossed my mind early in the novel as, a, as, as, as just a fleeting impression was, was Robert Silverberg's novel Dying Inside. Because here is a mind which is used to having lots and lots of bodies suddenly reduced to having one mind. Uh, Robert Silverberg's Dying Inside is about a telepath who's losing his capacity to read other people's minds and suddenly finds himself isolated. So you have mm-hmm. to be able to write both the, um, both the point of view of a character inhabiting lots of different bodies um, and then go from that to the tragic reduction of that sort of um, group mind into being confined to one mind in one body in one place. And do this in alternating chapters. That must have been fun. Uh, yeah, fun. Yeah, it it was fun in both senses, in both the the ironic, sarcastic sense and the the genuinely sincere sense. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, but that was that was one of the reasons it took me so long to get up the courage to even start, um, because I had no idea. I was like, how do you convey somebody who can be in twenty places at once? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who, in fact, is in more than 20 places at once and is seeing and thinking about tons and tons of things that are just not even relevant to the story. Um, how, how do I even begin to convey that? And then how do I convey it? It's easier to do the character after she's lost all of that and she's only down to one body. But even then, as you say, there is some sense of what isn't there anymore. How, this is not a person who has always just had one body. So yeah, that was, that was really intimidating and it was, it was really a scary thing. And, uh, I was not at all sure that I could pull it off. I think it works really well. And that's why you can understand why it would make me think of the Silverberg novel, because there has mm-hmm. to be a sense of tragedy that, first of all, you have to convey a state of mind that nobody, no reader has experienced. None of us knows what it's like to control 20 or 30 or 40 bodies. Uh, and once you've done that, then you have to make the human condition, as we all know it, look like a tragic condition. Yeah. Because there's only one of us in one mind. Um, and that's exactly what Silverberg did very well in Dying Inside, even though it was a completely mm-hmm. different plot and different kind of story. But you're, yeah, you're right. It is the same kind of the same kind of idea. Yeah. At what point, when you were writing Ancillary Justice, did you realize that you were dealing with a trilogy? Oh, very early on, uh, which is kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, there's mm. nothing, there's nothing natural about, there's nothing about a story. How do I, there's nothing objective that says uh, stories ought to come in trilogies, right? Sure. Right? Isn't that kind of weird? But I began writing it. I'm like, oh, this is totally a trilogy. Don't ask me why. It just seemed like, <laughs> well, I know why. It's because I grew up reading trilogies, right? Yeah, I was going to say, is, is it a, a, a thing that you learn reading science fiction, uh, which is such a, a you know a a series format? I mean, I'm sitting in in a room surrounded by bookshelves filled with books that somehow managed to come in in trilogies, in quartets, in quintets. It seems a natural thing. To the point where mm-hmm. you start arguing about and discussing, you know, what a middle book does as opposed to what a third book does, because it's such a common, common thing. So is yep. it, you know, to some degree, recognizing echoes in the structure of your story that is similar to echoes in other stories you've read that tell you this is going to be like that? 
that very probably very probably yeah. although i tried to when i wrote ancillary justice i had no I, as i did not think it would sell at all i i thought i was writing into a void you know but i was going to do it anyway uh and when uh when my agent sent it out i when i when i went looking for an agent i didn't even say this is actually a trilogy i didn't i just said here's this novel and i wrote it so that i could make it a standalone so that it could be its own thing, but also that I could go on if I got a chance to. Um, so, so it's it's sort of it's in a weird place for me that way. But um, but yeah, I think. Well, I also think just reading some when you read a particular structure, a particular kind of thing, you start producing work that's in that, mm-hmm. you know, in that tradition. I know. Uh, I think uh, Nick Mamatas was it Nick, Mama, yeah, Nick yeah. Mamatas who yeah. has written uh, who has written term papers for money. <laughs> And uh, I remember him saying that the reason students have a hard time writing term papers is because they don't read lots and lots of term papers. Okay. So people who set out to write a novel, by and large, with, within certain limitations, of course, don't have problems knowing where to start writing a novel. I mean, they might produce really bad ones, but they, they know what's involved. But because people read tons of novels. Uh, but So the thing you read a lot of is the thing that you're going to produce almost without even thinking about it. So I suspect well, when you, that's... When you have a world as complex, and I think almost anybody who reads Ancillary Justice is going to realize that there's a lot more to that world um, than what we're being told in this particular story. But that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that you as an author have to decide on on a trilogy as a shape. A trilogy suggests a narrative arc of some sort, or at least a connected narrative arc. You could, you could have decided on a trilogy, or you, you could have decided on okay, this is a universe I'm going to settle into for a while. You could have, you could have decided, okay, this is, this is a Lois McMaster Bujold universe, and I can just keep writing novels in this for a long time, and it will be fine. Why did you decide trilogy instead of that? Well, partly because, well, okay. So on the one hand, I actually would probably, by my choice, stay in this universe even after this trilogy is finished. Okay. Uh, partly because, uh, like the Lois McMaster Bajold universe, it's a big one, and I could just write story mm-hmm. after story after story in all kinds of places. Um, on the other hand, what I don't want is to be endlessly writing Breck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love Breck, obviously. Obviously, I love Breck, and I have a great deal of fun writing her. Um, but I don't want to be uh, 20 years from now putting out volume 15 of the Brett Chronicles. So you're, so, you're perhaps, so you're perhaps more looking at a Cherry Union Alliance kind of a model than um, the Bujold Vorkosigan model. Yeah, probably more so. Mm-hmm. Which I can see is interesting. I have, another question. I have another question about, I'm sorry, John. No, no, what are you going to say? I just was going to say I had another question about point of view because this is, this, you, you do something in this novel which I find myself a sucker for when I see it, and I don't see it that often. And that is, there are two kinds of suspense going on, and um, this, this, this is the professor part of me blathering, so just mm-hmm. forgive me for a second. But there's, there's this incident-by-incident narrative suspense. What is this character going to do next? What's the consequence of this? The chapter-by-chapter page-turning suspense. And then there's the structural suspense. And by structural suspense, I mean you have two narratives... 20 years apart, and I suspect most readers shared my interest in thinking, what's going to happen when these two narratives finally come together? Um, 
Is there going to be another part of the novel that goes on from there? Are we going to not bring these two narratives together until the very end of the novel? In other words, the very way you write a novel can create questions in the mind of the reader. And in, in this case, it's questions of having two narrative lines removed by 20 years. But it could be something else. It could be having multiple points of view and wondering how they're going to come together and so forth and so on. Um, I was wondering how you decided uh, to do this backstory as a separate narrative rather than uh, what a lot of people would have done, which would have been inserting it as backstory and italicized passages and regretful memories and that sort of thing uh, all during the course of the main narrative. Well, we actually, when I very, very, very first attempted, I attempted to do the entire thing in chronological order. Oh, no. And it was horrible. It was horrible. Uh, it did not work. And in fact, I tried to do, I had been writing short stories for so long. I had I had written a couple novels, and then I decided to do short stories. And I worked really hard at really compressing and... and uh, making things as short and as efficient as possible. And then I went back to doing novels and I tried to start, I did the short story thing where you want to start as far in as possible, like, you know, cut off the beginning of the story until it bleeds. And then mm -hmm. that's where you start. And I couldn't do that here either. So I tried to start the whole novel with, uh, with the thing that happens in the temple in Ors. Mm. <laughs> and it was a disaster. <laughs> it was a complete disaster. Um, and so it, that was one of the things that took me a long time to figure out that that was the way I needed to do it. But once I said, well, I could do it alternating, I didn't. So the the inserting backstory thing and the regretful thoughts and the I personally, that very rarely works for me as a reader. Um, yeah. it, it often feels very deliberate and uh, almost sort of look, look, here's some exposition, which to some extent, I mean, it's hard when you're writing science fiction uh, and fantasy uh exposition is so important uh, and it can be so difficult to do that sometimes you have to do things where you can see the scaffolding. There's there's really no choice. But that particular kind of thing is one that doesn't really work very well for me as a reader. And so I just, I never even considered doing that, to be honest. No, and it, it wouldn't have worked in terms of what you had, what you need to convey about uh, Breck's contrasting states of mind. Having, it, it, you're absolutely right. The last thing you would need is have Brett Breck ruminating, oh, back when I had 20 bodies. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it doesn't get the emotional punch either, which no, exactly. I, it's the emotional punch is really important in that timeline, I think, to to make sense of why she's doing what she's doing. Um, and and so that that sort of thinking back to when I had 20 bodies, thinking back to it, it doesn't have that sort of visceral effect that I really wanted. You talked a lot about making well, you talked about wanting to make ancillary justice stand alone as much as possible. How has that put pressure on writing and structuring ancillary sword and ancillary mercery, mercy? Huh. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that it has, partly because I left myself as big of an out as I could to go on. <laughs> I, I guess I'm just thinking because obviously you know you're this this thought this worry which was quite understandable that ancillary justice I guess potentially could have been your one shot at getting a novel out there may not have been a second and a third when you when you first were conceiving it so it had to be as complete as possible but second and third books do different things you know is there in your mind a pressure to make them stand alone as much as possible or is the foundation of ancillary justice something that they can stand on structurally and you don't feel the same concern about it now 
Oh, I I definitely feel like uh, the first book is a structure that this, the next book can stand on. That's definitely, it's almost, in some ways, it's a huge relief uh, because there is exposition, expositional work that's already done in the first book that I don't need to do in the mm-hmm. next book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's really helpful to have all of that, to just sort of continue to write. Uh, at the same time, obviously, uh, on the theory that there would hopefully be new readers who would pick it up, I, I do need to do some reminding and trying to orient people, but uh, I, I feel like I don't have to work quite as hard at orienting people because there's there are actually at this point going to be readers who already know some of that. Uh, so that's really actually I, I'm really very happy to, to be working that way. <laughs> and, One of the things. Go ahead, John. Okay, no, good. Um, uh, this is shifting a little bit, but um, you were mentioning earlier, uh, and that possibly not as much as in the past, I would hope, but possibly uh, women writers would more get tracked toward fantasy worlds, toward worlds in which, or at least worlds that were ambiguously science fictional and fantasy, like, I don't know, Steph Swainston's Year of Our uh, War uh, series. But there's also a sense I'm beginning to get when I read space opera these days, galactic spanning space opera, the kind of stuff we, we grew up with, that that's more and more at odds with what hard SF writers believe will ever be possible. In other words, the notion of so many writers um, like Alastair Reynolds or Paul McCauley uh, or, or Kim Stanley Robinson shrinking back into the solar system as the only real setting. And it strikes me that the more the more the science fiction community begins to recognize that interstellar travel in any efficient sense is not going to happen, the more... But, but but at the same time, we don't want to give up those great space uh, galaxy-spanning galaxy space operas. But does that mean that those space operas begin to look more and more like fantasy because they're based on something that really isn't likely to happen? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, even looking at older science fiction that's been... For all the things set on Mars, for instance, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, you hit the 70s and suddenly decades of science fiction looks like fantasy now. Yeah. Because we know what Mars looks like, right? Um, and and that's really kind of interesting. Uh, I tend not to worry too much about whether something looks more like fantasy or more like science fiction, partly because I've always felt that science fiction is huge. There's so much different stuff. Uh, one of the things I love about it is you can read a big galaxy-spanning space opera you know, and next to it on the shelf will be some very carefully worked out near future thing that is it barely deviates from where we are now, but does something really cool and interesting. Uh, mm. And so I sort of feel like there's room for all of it. Um, and, I, and I'm glad that all of it's there because, you know, when some days I might want to read one and some days I might want to read the other. Um, so, yeah, but I think you're right. The big galaxy spanning stuff does begin to look a little more like fantasy, except at the same time, I don't know, the distinction between fantasy and science fiction can be a little fuzzy in my mind sometimes, too. Uh, and sometimes well, I'm a little baffled at the things people call hard science fiction when I don't feel they're particularly hard. Uh, people have called ancillary justice hard science fiction, which I find completely baffling. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy if they want to consider it that. I, I'm not going to complain. Um, but I think that's kind of odd uh, because I didn't think of it as hard science fiction when I wrote it, right? So I, to some extent, I think a lot of those definitions are kind of squishy to begin with, and they depend on the person who's p- placing the labels. Sure. I think that's true. 
And you mentioned, uh, to get back to Jack Vance again, and it seems to me that the, not only in terms of galaxy-spanning narratives, but you know, billion-year narratives, that he mm-hmm. and a few writers early on realized that, and Gene Wolfe has done the same thing, obviously, that if, if you get far enough away in space or time, it's really hard to make that distinction. Uh, what, you know, what I think Vance himself used the term science fantasy, didn't he, he uh, did, Jonathan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is it's still a useful term that seems to have gone out of fashion, but it seems to be something that needs to be brought back. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Although I've, I've noticed a number of folks like on Twitter and elsewhere talking about, well, where's the science fantasy? I want some science fantasy. Where is it at? Uh, and so uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see something really cool and exciting come up that's very science fantasy-ish in the near future. Great. Maybe we can create a trend here. <laughs> Actually, what I find I struggle to find a lot of, and I wonder if I ever did, it, or, or it's just one of those things that you romanticize, is how much hard science fiction did you ever, we ever actually see? You know, I mean, people talk out. about it a lot, but other than a period in the 40s when I guess everybody talk, seemed to be talking about engineering, and we seem to uh, make engineering the equivalent of uh, hard science fiction, the real sort of Har- Hal Clement kind of thing, the whole flat or flatland or whatever else kind of thing, that base, was based on you know real physics, has always seemed to be a very rare thing. Well, yeah, I think it's always been rare. And I, to be, you know, um, my parents were biochemists yeah. and they never understood my love for science fiction. Uh, they, they always assumed that one day I would grow out of it. Um, <laughs> and, and at, at, when it became clear that I wasn't going to, then they, they were very happy to support me, uh, in, in my ambitions. But, uh, they, they found the science in any of the science fiction that they saw or read to be completely laughable. Sure. Um, and so having grown up in that, in that kind of an atmosphere, I find it difficult to take too terribly seriously claims about the perfection of the science in even the hardest of hard science fiction. Although, uh, I mean, how Clement's really cool, right? Uh, and I don't doubt that his science is pretty darn good, and my parents were not physicists or anything. But as a rule, I think uh, science fiction tends to be more sciencey than scientific. And personally, I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, although, obviously, I really enjoy the stuff that takes science very seriously. But uh, I kind of feel like some of that is a little more uh, uh, self-validating, self-congratulatory than really... Sure. Uh, accurate about the science in the stories because I think you're right there's a, there was a brief period of time and a couple of authors who really did all their equations it's also interesting that hard science always seems to be physics yeah and, and not anything well, else generic. that's true and I, I think also I, mean, I think the truth of it is it's actually more I've wondered thought over time to, uh, to do with a coldness of affect rather than mm-hmm. anything else you know that, yep. that it's that's an it's an Aspergerish style Rather, rather than the fact that we're really going to play with the, with the net up in some meaningful way, and look at how some ab- abstract, you know, how will will cosmic string theory actually affect day to day life in the future or something? That's not really what's being asked usually, as you try and find yeah. a story to tell. Um, yeah. And that's why I, mean, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, about the Vorkosigan books, and my friend was positing that it was wasn't reasonable to say they weren't hard science fiction. And I was going, well, there's no way I, could, I consider them to be hard science fiction. They're definitely science fiction, and they're definitely space opera, but I don't think that they're hard science fiction. 
and my friend felt that was being prejudiced by going, I kind of feel like they're not fundamentally about a, the turn of a, an item of technology usually, and they don't have that coldness of affect. They're adventure stories in space. Mm-hmm. You know, which, which is a fine thing to write, in my opinion. Otherwise, I would have, you know, I've, I've read an awful lot of books that I wouldn't have enjoyed. But I, I wonder if, I mean, I, and I guess this is what a lot of this comes down to: is it an exclusionary club game? The whole I kind of description of genre to some degree. Yeah, I I think to a certain extent it is. Uh, to some extent, I mean, there's you can have some fun. It's a fun game, laying things out and seeing. Uh, oh, let's categorize them this this way. Let's categorize them another way. If we draw a line here, what kind of pattern does it make? And that that's a fun game, and I don't mind that that discussion in that spirit. But I think sometimes it's it's this is the true science fiction. And this is the stuff that if we let it into the true science fiction, we'll corrupt it or the stuff that's ruining science fiction or the direction that science fiction shouldn't be going. Or, I, you know, it, sometimes that's where that discussion is yeah. definitely going. Well, there's another perspective, and I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure Jonathan and I agree with the, with the coldness of affect. I think there is some of that, which derives from the fact that some hard science fiction writers simply didn't know how to write character to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> well. It's funny the, because it's also, true. <laughs> Infamously, Doc Smith get, get, getting the, the, the lady the next Doc door to help with the women characters, yeah. Well, we, we, we talked about Hal Clement, and I grew up loving Hal Clement as well. And you can have you have the most bizarre, wonderfully thought-out environment. You've got Mesklin, or you've got Ice World, which turns out to be our world or whatever. And he's worked out all the details, and the characters still talk like Damon Runyon characters from 1943. They <laughs> have from the, the finest cardboard. Attitude. Yeah, uh, and you think, okay, because fictionally, the fiction he grew up with was that kind of fiction. He had a certain kind of template for pulp fiction, for dialogue. You got the kid from Brooklyn, you know, you got the Jewish kid. Any World War II movie will show you these characters. And he figured, okay, that was not what the fiction was about. He was going to spend all his, I only met him once, and um, he was not a very interesting person, I'm sorry to say. But <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> It was clear that his job was to work out the physics and the characters, the gender attitudes, the racial attitudes, the social attitudes, the economic attitudes were stuff that he simply inherited from the publishing tradition that he found himself part of. Right, because he wasn't interested in that, and and I think that's I think that's totally fair. That's totally fine. Uh, he, he's he is fun to read. Um, yeah. Granted that you understand that you're not looking for wonderful characters or lots of emotional punch, uh, but I mean that's that's really awesome and cool. Uh, I am not down for saying that that's what all science fiction should be or that's true science fiction, um, mm -hmm. because I I would get bored awfully quickly if that's all there was to read. Very much, very much. I, I guess as we begin to get towards the end of our our hour, and we try to keep it to the hour without rambling too much. Where where next? I mean, I assume that Ancillary Sword is complete. Uh huh. And just turned in copy edits. Fantastic. And Ancillary Mercury. That's all sort of. Is, is that what what you're working on now, or? Mm hmm. Yes, it is. So it's not not one of these things where you'd basically finish the entire package and went, well, there I'm kind of done as one great big blob of it. You've been sort of wrestling with it over the last few years to finish it. I'm not quite, well, I'm not anywhere near finished with Ancillary Mercy, so uh, I will be very relieved when I'm done. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but then, and after that, I don't know where I'm going next, and I probably need to start thinking about that. Yeah. 
actually. How has the experience of how ancillary justice has been received impacting on what you're doing with ancillary mercy? Was it all laid out enough that you kind of knew what it had to be or has that evolved over the last 12 months or so? Well, it's definitely evolved over the last 12 months or so. I've, I've always been a pantser uh, as a writer and I have never uh, been particularly good at outlining. And so often I just have a couple of high points. I have a couple of moments that I know I want to hit and then I try and figure out how I'm getting from point A to point B. And so, and that gets filled in as I go. So, uh, so the, the experience of writing Ancillary Mercy and frankly of writing Ancillary Sword uh, has been kind of weird because I wrote Ancillary Justice all on my own. Mm -hmm. it, like I said, I, I was essentially writing into a void. But then Ancillary Justice came out and suddenly people were beginning to speculate about what would happen in Ancillary Sword or what they thought I ought to do in Ancillary Sword. And I'd be like, I'd be writing it, you know? <laughs> and I'd be going, um, well, maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> Were there any moments? Oh, oh, and that's a good idea. You must have seen blog posts saying, I'll be really disappointed if she doesn't do this. Yes, I have seen, I've seen a few. And, and one or two of them, actually, one or two of them, have been uh, kind of touching. There was one where uh, a person on Tumblr said something like, uh, I'm so glad that Lucky did this, and I really hope she doesn't ruin it by doing this other thing in the future, because if she does, I'll be really upset, but I trust her. <laughs> oh, and, and that's... I, no, that was really touching, because, I mean, I, I'm a reader, and I know what that feels like to read an author and to, to feel like I can trust this author. And... And I was like, oh, oh, bless you. You know, that's, that's so wonderful. Um, and then I'm thinking, oh, I really hope I'm not about to really do something terrible to you. Um, but I have to write the book that I'm going to write. But I actually, I think that person probably doesn't have a lot to worry about. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I've seen a number of those. So you don't have big post-it yeah, notes on your wall in front of your desk saying, don't do this and don't do that? Well, I mean, I can't. There are also people who have said really, oh, I really hope that such and such happens. And I'm like, oh, no. There's the approach of let's not hurt the reader's feelings and there's the approach of let's say George R. R. Martin who lets it be known repeatedly in that series that he is not necessarily the reader's friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't and you know, that's a fine line I think because on the one hand, um I'm not writing into a void. I'm writing for readers. And right. I, even though, even when I was writing into a void, my aim was to write for readers. And so I don't want to pretend like the reader doesn't matter. At the same time, um, I have to be true to the thing that I'm trying to do and not sort of compromise back and forth at, at everybody's suggestion. And so I have to be able to kind of stick tight to, to my vision of what I want to do with this. So, well, so that's, it, it, but it feels kind of weird to have people commenting on what they think I'm going to do. I've never had that before. I've I've had things published. I've had short fiction published. But I've never had, like, you know, a, a series of stories, for instance, where people are anticipating what I'm doing next. And it's really kind of strange to be able to sort of overhear people saying, well, I'll be really upset if she doesn't. Or, gosh, I really hope. Or she'd better not. You know, and I'd be like, well, uh, this is very strange. <laughs> this is awkward. You know? I think that's an effect of social media. 
media, that's an effect of instantaneous communication. I mean, imagine imagine if Tolkien had just published The Fellowship of the Ring and started getting tweets about it, what, what it better do next. Can you? Oh, my gosh. It's it's a very weird sensation. It is very strange. And sometimes I kind of have to pull back from the Internet and kind of regain my equilibrium because it's uh-huh. it's kind of difficult. Yeah. Well, with, with the Nebula Awards now sort of behind us and with the Hugos in front of us, I should ask, will you be in London for the convention and for the awards? I will. I will be in London. Fantastic. Well, we will be there as well, won't we, Gary? We will be there. We've just been finalizing tourist plans because we're off to France beforehand and then to to, to wonderful, yeah, and and then to London. So hopefully we'll see you there. Yeah, that would be awesome. And see you, uh, in fact, at the Hugo ceremony, if nowhere else. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, I plan to be there. By the way, had you gone to to a lot of conventions and things before you suddenly became famous? (laughs) Um. (laughs) In fact, uh, the first convention, I had not gone to many conventions until relatively late. Um, I went to a Mid-South Con because uh, C.J. Cherry was going to be there. And some cool. of, and she was going to do a coffee clutch. And a couple of my friends uh, from a fan message board, we were going to all go together and be sure and sign up for the coffee clutch, which we did successfully, and it was a blast. Uh, and I had a really good time. Uh, but then I think I went to a couple of Mid-South Cons. But then after Clarion West, I started going to WISCON, which I love WISCON. Um, uh-huh. and it hasn't been until maybe the past couple years, the first world con I went to, I went because I was on the board of SIFWA and I had to go to the board meeting and I've been uh-huh. going to world con since then, but I have not been a huge attender of cons, but just a couple ones here and there. Well then brace yourself for the largest world con that's ever been held. That's awesome. what I'm hearing. <laughs> it's It's, it's going to be huge. It's like... They've got eight and a quarter thousand members now and it's on its way up. And allowing for walk-ins and everything else around London, it's going to be enormous, which should be fun. It, it should could, be a lot of fun. Hit, it should be. It could 10,000, I've been told by people in London. Yeah. Well. 10,000? I've been hearing 8,000, which is big enough. Well, they've already got oh, more, yeah. more than 8,000. I, I would not be surprised to see the walk with walk-ins to get, certainly get up to nine. Mm. Wow. And the largest of all time is what, 1984? I only know this not because I'm a Worldcon geek, but because I looked it up in the last week or two. Uh, was about 8,000 and a bit in 1984. So, wow. And this is, this is easily the largest in, oh, it's double last year's or something. And so it's going to be huge. It is going to be re- really insane. So I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to maybe seeing you there. And yeah. until then, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, it's been a great time. Yeah. And yes, maybe we'll get you. to talk to you again towards the, towards the end of the trilogy as well. That would be fun. That would be fun. Well, until then, thank you for joining us. And Gary, until next week when we do this again. Until next week, we'll talk again. Unless that's the one we're going to skip. We'll have to think about that. Okay. Anyway, until <laughs> next time. Bye. Bye.